Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Spy M is not actually a character from a James Bond movie. It is a government committee. It stands for the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group for Modelling. Bit of a mouthful. It feeds into SAGE, the all-important scientific committee, and is on the basis of the models, the forecasts, that Spy M produces that the government takes its policy decisions. So looking at their charts, Boris Johnson decided to delay the reopening on the 19th of June, and we're now at looking at the 19th of July. We have one of the members of Spy M joining us today. He's called Dr. Mike Tildesley from the University of Warwick. Thanks for coming back on the show. This is your second time. We just really wanted to pick up with you and see how we're doing against your projections. What what sort of overall is your feeling of how the pandemic is doing now compared to what you last forecast before the government made its big decision about delaying the 19th of June? Well, I mean, actually, I'm cautiously optimistic given where we are at the moment. Now, you know, we it's it's almost like kind of a game of two halves, as it were. If you look at cases, then cases are going up in a really concerning way. We're reporting cases in the tens of thousands now compared with one, two thousand that we were a few uh, couple of months ago. However, we haven't yet seen that translate across into significant rises in hospital admissions and deaths. And so this is, you know, this is what makes me cautiously optimistic. The vaccinations are actually much more protective than certainly at the start of the year we thought they would be, which gives some indication that we are really working to break that link between cases and hospital admissions. So I think if we continue to see this over the next week or two, I'm pretty hopeful that the July 19th relaxation should proceed as planned. Um, and we won't see a big rise in hospitalizations and beyond beyond that. We may see something of a rise. I think that's very expected because, of course, as we reopen, people will mix more. And then it comes down to the sort of the really difficult issue that the government have to answer, which is what kind of rise are they prepared to put up with to allow us to get back to normality? And I think it's something that, well, I've been talking about for quite a while, actually. But interestingly, certain voices in government have now started to say the same sort of thing as we think about moving towards living with COVID. This is, comes after Sajid Javid, the new health secretary, talked about how elimination is not a possibility and 
we need to work out how to live with it. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm a little bit encouraged by that because I do sort of worry that, um, you know, you know for, for what, 18 months now, almost, we have been reporting every day in the media, the number of cases, the number of hospital admissions and the number of deaths. And um, even when those deaths have gone down to single figure, um, single figures. Um, and in the longer term, we have to get more into a kind of a flu type relationship. You know, we don't want a thousand deaths per day. Clearly, that's catastrophic. Um, but if we get into the winter and we have a rise in cases and a rise in hospital emissions similar to what we see in, in, in previous years for flu, do we consider that to be acceptable? Anyway, everyone will have their own opinion as to what the answer to that question is. But clearly, in the longer term, we need to develop that more of that kind of flu relationship with COVID. Do you agree with some um, backbenchers who are talking about the need to stop publishing the daily uh, numbers or at least stop broadcasting them because it creates a kind of psychological effect? That's been talked about in recent days. That part of the journey back to normal will be to focus less on the numbers. I think ultimately we've got to do that. I think particularly with the deaths, as I said, you know, I've, I've talked in the media before about like, we don't say how many deaths there are every day from say cancer or from road accidents or all these other things. Um, and actually we're at the stage at the moment where um, the number of deaths are sort of in the tens, um, significantly lower than deaths from many other causes. And I think we need to put it into perspective. As I said, we don't want hundreds, thousands of deaths, but having a situation where for the foreseeable future we report the number of deaths from COVID even when it's really, really low numbers, I don't think is helpful in terms of enabling us to get back to normality. Okay, we've got a slide, Dr. Tilsley, which is the uh, set of projections that the government considered from SPY-M, this uh, committee, in advance of making their decisions. Um, so that, that little, um, the dotted line there, the last dotted line would be the start of July. So I suppose we're just up, we're just before that. So reading across, we should be expecting around the five, six hundred daily hospital admissions per this model. And we're actually nearer 200. So we're roughly a third of what you forecast in terms of hospital admissions. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely right. And this is always the challenge with these models. I mean, in a sense, you know, these models are only as good as the data that go in, which is why absolutely every time that we um, you know, we do our forecasts, we re-parameterize our models to fit to the latest data that we see. Um, now, at the time, of course, when these forecasts were done, um, the incidence was very low. The prevalence, should I say, of the virus was very low around the country. And of course, we'd only recently had the emergence of the Delta variant. So there was quite a bit of uncertainty regarding how effective the vaccines were going to be against hospital emissions and deaths. So that's why really with this one, we're seeing perhaps a little bit more pessimistic view of what we are actually seeing now. So which which variable in, I mean, it's a hard thing to do. I, obviously, I think everyone needs to understand that, that you're doing a kind of, you're trying to do a forecast based on multiple different factors all interlocking with each other. But which of the variables do you think best, did you get wrong, as it were? I mean, which one explains the fact that this number is a third of what you thought it would be? Well, I think it's really hard to pinpoint that down to a single variable because, of course, there's a number of unknowns that we have to take into account when we run these models. When we think of vaccine efficacy, so that's obviously the first obvious one that we can look at. So when we think about vaccine efficacy, there's, there's a number of different things to think about. So vaccine efficacy could mean vaccine efficacy against infection, um, protection against infection. It could mean protection against developing symptoms. It could also mean protection against 
um, going into hospital or protection against death. And we have different estimates of what the efficacy is at all of these stages. Now, the challenge, of course, we have and, um, you know, is that when a new variant emerges, you are yet to see individuals, of course, going into hospital or individuals developing severe symptoms. And so that's why there's a lot of uncertainty around what the efficacy actually is. As time goes on, of course, you have much more confidence around those. Values. So do you think so that's, that's yeah. the one that, because we, if I, we've actually got the second and last slide that we have, are the presumptions that, that were in the models from the different uh, academic groups about vaccine efficacy. Um, and this is something that there has been some controversy about because uh, as I'm sure you saw in the newspapers, that at least the imperial group in particular, who were the most pessimistic, were taking a um, 77 to 87% range estimate for the effectiveness of two jabs of the AstraZeneca injection, whilst it seems like it's closer to 92 or more percent effective. So there was a question of why, why the government was getting that advice at the time when there was already better information available. I mean, do you think that is a problem and should people be upset about that? I think that's a challenge. And I think this is always the problem with, um, you know, with trying to fit these models in the um, when data are uncertain. I think the vaccine efficacies throughout have been slightly underestimated, shall we say, by the modelling groups. We are actually finding that the vaccines are much more effective than previously we thought they would be. Now, when these models are parameterized, of course, the vaccine efficacy data come through from Public Health England. So we, you know, we're not making up these values. We are using the best estimates of values that are coming through from those on the ground that have their estimates of them. So, of course, as time goes on, our certainty in those gets, um, you know, gets tighter, which is why it's actually really important that these models are only only form part of the decision making process, and that we make it really, really clear that when these forecasts are done, there is uncertainty around those. And of course, as you get more data, that uncertainty will um, decrease, and we get a much better predictions of what you expect to see. Knowing what we know now, with real observable data, how would that chart? change? I mean, what do you think the forecast now realistically looks like for the next couple of months? What, what should we have advised the government at that stage? Are those curves a lot shallower? Well, I think it's probably likely that certainly for hospital admissions, they will be somewhat shallower. I think cases are clearly going up in a concerning way. But as I said, this is the, this is the point where it looks like we're actually working better than we thought we were at breaking the link between cases and hospital admissions. So that's certainly, um, you know, certainly encouraging. The difficulty, of course- Do you have any sense of how much shallower yet? Are you tracking the, the daily real world data against your model? And do you, are you beginning to see what the differential is? So there's another uh, there's another uncertainty actually here, Freddie, that we've not mentioned that we do need to take into account, and that's actually how people are going to behave to a control change. So this is yeah you know, we focus so far on vaccine efficacy, but what we're also trying to do is every time that there is a relaxation, we are you know, we have parameters in the model that deal with what we expect that relaxation is going to be upon mixing, and I I suspect this is something else that perhaps some of these models have slightly overestimated as to what we might expect that will do in terms of the R number. So, and this is partly because of people's behavior. So just because controls have relaxed, it looks like looking at the data that actually people haven't gone back to, in inverted commas, normal um, in terms of what we might have expected prior to the pandemic. So people are still being a little bit more cautious. Maybe they're not going to the pub in the way that they were, say, 
back in January 2020. Um, and that obviously has some implications upon these forecasts that when these models were done and we look at the control changes, we might expect a rise in R in the R number that we're not quite seeing. So that's another uncertainty. So it's really hard to say, Freddie, exactly what peak we might expect to see, but certainly somewhat lower, I think, than these. But have, have you been asked to redo the exercise by the government? I mean, have you have you done an updated version of this? Because it seems like those two variables, if the vaccine effect, efficacy is greater and people's change of behaviour is less, in an exponential scenario, the compound effect of those could be very dramatic indeed. I mean, have you redone the exercise? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I will say these models are always being recalibrated to new data. So, And that's actually an extremely important part of the process because when these control changes are made, we make an assumption as to what we think is going to happen in terms of VR number. When it actually happens, of course, when the control change happens, you then have much more confidence in terms of what has actually happened. So mm. the models can then be refitted and the forecast can and have, be done Have again. you done that? Have you recalibrated well, it? Well, I mean, it's, it's, hard, it's hard for me to talk about this because, of course, this is, you know, this is work that's ongoing with the government. But as I said, all I will say is these models are constantly being refitted when new data become available. The key question, I think, for ordinary people is, and this is not to put you on the spot, this is not to try and um, you know, make you responsible for all of this, but if the government is getting a certain set of advice in the beginning of June saying this chart is what's going to happen if you release people uh, on the 19th of June, 19th of June has now passed and we now know that advice was incorrect was overly pessimistic on, you've mentioned two variables that were overly pessimistic, and so the overall effect is much less. Did they make the right decision? Should they yeah. update their decision? Yeah, that's what people will, will be asking, I think. 
Well, I mean, all I will say is if you read these roadmap documents, um, and the Warwick One is obviously Warwick One is one of those, there is a whole section at the end of this roadmap document which deals with what we call sensitivity analysis. So we in that section, we will challenge our assumptions and we will say, you know, if we have an optimistic scenario, so if, for instance, we're wrong about our vaccine efficacy assumptions and actually it's significantly better, say in the 90%, then we will actually show what we expect to happen in terms of a rise in cases. And you can see in that section at the end of this roadmap document, we do get situations where actually the hospital admissions wave is significantly lower. So this is where it's, and this is actually very important as a responsible modeler, it's really important that you do this because we're not making the decisions, of course, we are advising the government as to what we expect to see, but in the presence of uncertainty. In terms of whether they made the right decision or not, I mean, I would always say at this point in time, the Delta variant had just emerged. There was a lot of uncertainty around it. And some of the forecasts on the more pessimistic end did suggest there could be a significant wave over the summer. And I think I was always very much of the position of, you know, we are not 100% confident that we're going to have a big wave, but there is still the possibility that that could happen. And so it made sense to slightly delay so that we had more information. And this was always how I was saying it in the media, that we don't know yet. There's a lot of uncertainty and the extra four week delay will enable us to resolve that uncertainty. In hindsight, looking back, we can say that actually, yes, we it's actually and we're in a much better situation than we thought we were. But I think at the time that that decision was made, we just didn't know. So in hindsight, looking back, had we known everything that we know now, would they should they have made a different decision? Well, I think I mean, in, in hindsight, possibly we're in a position that, um, you know, the, the vaccine efficacies are much more effective. But, and this is this is the caveat here, the delay has also enabled us to vaccinate a lot more people with a slightly with a slightly higher level of restrictions in place. And this is where it's always a bit of a challenge because in a way, Freddie, you know, if you wait, you're always gonna have a smaller wave. But of course, if you wait, then that's of course much more damaging for the economy and for people's well-being and mental health and so forth. So there's always a little bit of a trade-off here. The epidemiologist in me would always say it's slightly better to err on the side of caution, but I was always very adamant when I, you know, when I said this delay was in place, that it is really important that we get back to normal. And I think it's really important that we do get back to normal on the 19th of July. Um, and the delay was probably necessary to allow us to resolve that uncertainty. Do you worry as a modeler that you're getting too much responsibility almost? Because, and I think part of what people sort of tear their hair out about is that we're making these enormously consequential government decisions that literally affect everybody's lives hugely dramatically based on complex speculative models with lots of variables that, as you say, can hugely change if one of those variables is slightly off. They are tilted towards the pessimistic. The government seems to take the most pessimistic of those and then a bit extra just for good measure. And then we never get revisions in the other direction. You know, the, the 19th of July, there was some talk that we maybe we'd open on the, on the 5th, uh, given the better data. But of course, that, that didn't happen. The, all these things put together, you know, they, they, they turn people into conspiracy theorists because they kind of think, well, it's a bit of a stitch up. We're always going to the, the modelers are going to pr produce some terrible scenario and the government's going to jump on it. What do you think you've sort of been been asked to have too much responsibility here and actually we should be relying less on modelers? I think it's really difficult because, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've worked as an infectious disease modeler for 
well, nearly 20 years now. Um, and, um, you know, I've always said um, the model should only form part of the decision making process. Yeah, you also need health experts, you know, economists, you know, people from all these, you know, social scientists, you know, a huge range of different expertise to advise the government, because it's not just what the models are predicting. And there is uncertainty in those models. I think our responsibility is to make sure that we communicate what we expect from the models, but also communicate the uncertainty in those models. That's really, really crucial. I don't ever think it's, um, you know, it's helpful to go in the media and say, if we'd locked down three weeks earlier, we would have saved, you know, 100,000 lives or whatever, you know, that's not productive because any one of those decisions, there's uncertainty around what we might expect to see. So I do worry a little bit that some of the response, you know, too much of the responsibility has been put on modelers. And I also worry a little bit about some of the rhetoric um, in among some members of the government who have always used the mantra, we're following the science, which almost seems like it's a little bit of a get out of jail free card. Um, so I think it's very important that, yes, we are advisors, but we're not decision makers. And, you know, the decision makers need to make a decision based upon a wealth of evidence that includes model results, but is not only taking into account model results. Going back to the actual situation with COVID for a sec, you're happy that 19th of July can go ahead. There's nothing that you're feeding in from updated models that makes you worried about 19th of July. As far as you're concerned, we're good to go on that. I hope so. And I think the other the, the other advantage with that is it coincides with school holidays. We've seen some situations where cases are going up a little bit in school children, which actually is not that ex unexpected because, of course, they're not vaccinated. So if you're going to see cases at the moment, you're likely to see them in younger people. Um, because schools are closing around that time as well, I think it's a real advantage for us to take that looking at the data, looking at hospital admissions and deaths, there's nothing at the moment that really worries me. And I think if we are going to get back to normal, we've really got to do it over the summer when um, the virus is less likely to transmit anyway. Otherwise, you know, I think we're going to be in a situation where it's going to be really hard. So I'm hopeful that 19th of July does go ahead as planned. Even if it's less steep than you had forecast, you still think we're going into some sort of exit wave. Is that fair to say that during July and possibly into August, we will see a big rise in cases and with it will be a rise, we don't yet know exactly how big, in hospitalizations and deaths. Is that still true? I think that is still true, but I, it's very much not going to be the situation we saw in October or the situation we saw in January um, because of the um, fantastic progress of the vaccines and the efficacies of the vaccines. So I suspect there will be some wave of hospital emissions. They're creeping up a little bit, though actually, interestingly, in some of the areas like Bolton, actually hospital emissions are starting to turn down a little bit, which is promising. So yes, I think there will be a wave, but I'm becoming more optimistic that it's not going to be anything like the same scale we saw in January. Here's the thing I can't get my head around, that the UK has almost no vaccine hesitancy compared to other countries. I mean, we're getting take up rates in the mid 90s. We've got plenty of vaccine, we have an efficient programme and 86% of adults have been vaccinated. And despite all of those things, we're still looking at a summer exit wave that is worth worrying about. If we're in this position, and we've still got worrying waves to come, what on earth are all the other countries going to do? Over the channel in France, you know, vaccine take up is in the 50s rather than the 90s. If the Delta variant is this transmissible, is it now inevitable that it just sweeps across Europe and they're going to have a much harder time of it in the coming months than we are? 
This actually really worries me. I think this is this is the biggest challenge that I think we have. Actually, we're doing pretty well in terms of getting back to domestic freedom, as it were, is looking really possible over the next few weeks. Internationally, it's a much more bleak picture. And I think we really need to do something. It's not just Europe, of course. I think we need to do something to try to support lower and middle income countries in terms of getting vaccines out to them. Because I think if we want to get back to international freedom, we need to start to think about this more as a global problem, supporting countries with their vaccination programme. Hesitancy in certain countries in Europe is a real worry because, of course, if they start to relax and vaccine uptake is really low, then you're absolutely right. They're going to see a wave. And actually, their wave is likely to be not just a wave in cases that we're seeing, but potentially a, a wave of hospital emissions and deaths as well, which is a big worry. So actually, in some way, we're sort of ahead of the curve here in the UK because we had a more of the Delta variant earlier. But it's almost inevitable then, is it, that we're in this coming autumn or the coming months, things are going to get bad again across Europe and the wider world. I think it's very possible. I think actually, I mean, I think this is the one thing that really with the UK, you know, we're always very uh, eager to criticise government decision making in the UK. And there are many things that you and I could both say should have been done better. But actually, the vaccination campaign has been immense. And I think the way that it's been rolled out and the uptake across all age groups has been fantastic. So I think hopefully we are going to see that as we get back to normal, the benefits of that vaccination programme are going to be really clear. In other countries, it's less so. And I only hope that over the coming month or two, we start to get higher levels of uptake in Europe. Otherwise, we probably are going to see a bigger wave of Delta across many countries in Europe as we move into the autumn. Sounds gloomy, Dr. Tilsey, uh, but thanks for giving us your view on that. No problem at all. That was Dr. Mike Tilsley of the University of Warwick. He is a member of SPY-M, the modelling committee that feeds into government. And I was asking him there about some of his forecasts and he was very clear that we are looking at a much better situation than he had feared at the start of June. And he came close to saying, I think, that had they known then what they know now, he would have recommended a different decision by the government on opening up. But we are where we are. The final little moment there I thought was a little bit more concerning where quite clearly this new variant is highly transmissible and however far advanced our vaccination programme is here in the UK, it looks like there's going to be troubling times ahead across Europe and the wider world. Thanks for tuning in. This was Lockdown TV. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.